0: Welcome to Fill the Gap, the official podcast series of the CMT Association, hosted by David Lundgren and Tyler Wood. This monthly podcast will bring veteran market analysts and money managers into conversations, that will explore the interviewees investment philosophy, their process and decision making tools. By learning more about their key mentors, early influences and their long careers in financial services, fill the gap will highlight lessons our guests have learned over many decades and multiple market cycles. Join us in conversation with the men and women of Wall Street who discovered, engineered and refined the discipline of technical market analysis. Good afternoon, Dave Lundgren. How are you today, my friend? I'm doing well, Tyler. How about yourself? I'm fantastic. It's a rainy Saturday. By the time we release episode 17 of Fill the Gap, the CMT Symposium will already be behind us. But from today's standpoint, I can't wait to see you next week in Washington, D.C.
1: Yeah, I am so, so much looking forward to this symposium I mean obviously it's the first one we've done live in a couple years so it's just it's the best part of the symposium is getting together with your colleagues you know you've known for years meet new ones and as you always like to emphasize and I totally agree the after session discussions in in the cocktail sessions if we call them that is always so much fun and it's really informative and I, I just can't wait to get there yeah
0: The last couple of years, I mean, there's been great education online. People can access experts from all over the world from the comfort of their home, but there's not a lot of additional debate, right? It's a sit and get format. And the symposium Mm. is really interactive, and I'm I'm looking forward to that. Speaking of interactive, our interview with Laura Martin here in episode 17 was fascinating.
1: Here's a person who,
0: you know, Stanford undergrad, Harvard Business School MBA, got her CFA, and later in her career came back to find out that she needed a better discipline for understanding sentiment and market behavior and then became a cmt charter holder in twenty sixteen. Dave, with this conversation with Laura Martin, what, what really stood out to you as, as the highlight? I mean, at the end of
1: the day, it's almost as if we went out into the CMT community and tried to find the perfect CMT charter holder to make our point and to Bring home the point that you and I are always talking about in the in the podcast about finding folks on the fundamental side who find value in technical analysis so much so that they get their CMT charter. It basically rounds them out as an investor and actually fills a significant gap. Hence the name of the podcast, right? I mean it's very intentional. To exactly. Fill the gap, and, and yep. the CMT charter filled a massive gap for her, for her. you know just the comments that she made about, in particular as you said, sentiment. I thought was really interesting how she used the charts to help her understand what not just the prevailing sentiment was, but when the trend changes and sort of simultaneously, when the trend changes and the sentiment changes, it's a whole different ball game in terms of how the the stock behaves after that. And, And her very timely and very recent experience with Netflix was just a, it's almost like we planned that as well, but she's had a sell on it all through COVID and, and she stuck to her guns. And, and of course, the stock was down odd percent I think, on the day that we interviewed her. So, you know, April 20th,
0: 2022, what was fascinating about that day, Wednesday, when we recorded, that was the first time that 39 out of the 40 analysts finally downgraded from a strong buy to a, to a hold or, or even a sell. And for Laura, that was the day that she went from a strong sell to a hold fascinating, yeah. fascinating yeah. to take a contrarian opinion. This is somebody who who knows and loves deeply the fundamental side of the business, right. but she could, she understood early on that when the back of sentiment breaks, there was no support under there from a fundamental perspective. Netflix being a beloved stock through the stay-at-home trade, there just wasn't anything to support price per share that it was trading at. Right. Fascinating moment and, and awesome that we captured it in real time, Dave. I follow, of course, Netflix and many other stocks very closely, but I went back and I
1: looked at how Netflix behaved from a relative performance perspective relative to its peers, relative to the market through that period where it's, it went up with all the other stay-at-home stocks, but on a, from a relative perspective, was, which is how she gets paid, it actually was a very, at very best, it was a mediocre stock. So even when the wind was at its back, yeah, going up with all these other stay-at-home stocks, her relative trend was it's completely in her favor. So just kudos to her, and whereas a community, of course, thankful that we were, you know, our body of knowledge was in large part what helped her stick to her guns and recognize, you
0: know, the sentiment. And here we are today with a great call on the books for. Her. You know, hearing Laura's, you know, recounting when she decided to approach technical analysis with with real vigor and go through the CMT program and spend all those years studying and passing tests. She said it was because. She was covering these, these mass aggregators, Amazon, Netflix, Google, Facebook, and they kept going up when, for fundamental reasons, there was no reason for them to go up. And I don't know if you remember, Dave, but in our conversation with Ralph Acampora, it reflected back on being a youngster in, in yeah. the early days of the MTA back in the late 1960s, meeting Ralph Rottenham. And he asked what was then, you know, a very senior veteran member of, of Wall Street, asked him, you know, sir, what, what was the hardest market to trade? And then immediately stopped himself. He said, Oh, that was a stupid question. You, you traded through the crash of 29. That must have been impossible. And Ralph Rottenham told him, No way, son. It, w- it was the 1950s because everything kept going up despite all of our belief that it couldn't. And <laughs> there it is again, right? History re- rhyming, if not fully repeating, where at times sentiment can elevate price per share of companies that. any fundamental reasons don't seem worth it so yeah particularly in the short term yeah particularly in the short term so fascinating conversation with laura martin for all of our listeners to fill the gap please enjoy this conversation in the may issue of fill the gap the official podcast from the cmt association fill the gap is brought to you with support from optima a professional charting and data analytics platform Whether you are a professional analyst, portfolio manager, or trader, Optima provides advanced technical and quantitative software to help you discover financial opportunities. Candidates in the CMT program gain free access to these powerful tools during the course of their study. Learn more at Optima.com.
1: to Fill the Gap, the official podcast of the CMT Association. This month, we have an especially interesting conversation lined up with one of Wall Street's top sell-side fundamental analysts, Laura Martin. Laura attended Stanford for her undergrad and later received her MBA from the Harvard Business School, and she is actually one of the rare dual charter holders. She holds both the CMT and the CFA charter. Over the past 20 years, Laura has accumulated numerous accolades, For her research acumen including best of the independent research boutiques and repeatedly ranking among the best according to Institutional Investor Magazine. Since 2009, Laura has been the senior entertainment and internet analyst at Needham Company. So this conversation could not be better timed given what's been going on in her coverage over the past 12 months and of course leading up to this period. So this ought to be a very interesting and timely conversation. So with that introduction, Laura Martin, welcome to Fill the Gap.
2: Thank you very much for inviting me. I'm happy to be here.
1: We know you had to push our discussion off about a half an hour because you had to do a media appearance because of your spectacular call on Netflix. I think it's down, Tyler just said 37% today. So congrats to you on that fantastic call. I know you took a lot of heat for it during the COVID bubble when everything that was stay-at-home related exploded yeah. higher, and but you stuck to your guns, which is something rare we see on, on Wall Street. So congrats to you on that.
2: But I tell you, the CMT really helped because you know, sometimes when you get these stocks where I think what the CMT does the best is tell you that sentiment matters in addition to fundamentals. So for these stocks that sort of get ahead of themselves because everyone loves them, we were the only sell. And everybody had, you know, when I had 40 analysts competing with me on this name and they were all strong buys and buys. So the CMT really tells you Think about sentiment and think about what happens when sentiment gets broken. And that's what's happening today. The back of sentiment has been broken today, and that's why it's down 37%. And it Mm -hmm. might be overdone, but you know what? If sentiment is going to stay negative here, it can stay at this level for a year, just like it stayed overvalued for two years during COVID. So Mm -hmm. I really think the CMT and this, and you have it too, David, you must agree with this, that fundamental analysis is really helped and aided and abetted by the CMT kinds of frameworks. I think they're very complimentary, and they make you smarter on both directions, both on the chart, but also on the fundamentals. I think they're really complimentary.
1: You really just hit the nail on the head in terms of what Tyler and I are trying to do with this podcast in in order of what we're trying to do, trying to shed light on the value of technical analysis and show people how to connect the two between technicals and fundamentals, show the value of the CMT association itself. But then lastly, but certainly not least, find those CMT charter holders who are thriving with that charter. And you, of course, are a perfect example of that. And it just happens to be quite timely that today we have a very explicit example to refer to in our conversation. So once again, congratulations for that. What would be super helpful for our listeners is to get a sense for what got you into the investment business, kind of just a quick overview of your journey through the business, but then ultimately, and most importantly for this audience, what got you to think about, you know, I think it's time for me to get the CMT and think about things a little bit differently. What got you to sort of take that leap of faith and get your CMT?
2: Sure. So I came out of investment bank, I came out of Harvard Business School and went into investment banking, then jumped to the buy side for capital research and managed money. which was great. Then I came to the sell side, which is sort of, you know, I would say a little bit higher stakes because you're competing in published reports. And so you have to be willing to be wrong on a global platform or be right. And the Netflix, very controversial Netflix sell call was a great example of what you have to love as a sell side analyst, because you don't, you can be wrong on the buy side and no one knows. except your compensation. But yeah. on the sell side, what's in print, everybody knows. So for two years, lots of guys I went on interviews are like, you're an idiot. And I'm like, maybe, <laughs> you know. But again, I think what I really like about having the CMT in my toolbox is being able to look at the chart. And when someone says, Laura, what's fair value? Or where do you think it trades? I always gate my fundamental work by what the chart tells me. Even oh, if fantastic. I think fundamental value is down here at, you know, two hundred and fifty dollars, if I think that the sentiment's gonna if I look at a Bollinger bands and it tells me it's not gonna go below three hundred because there's real support there, I'll use three hundred because that's actually the right number, even though it might take two years to get to fundamental value. And I think that's the better advice for people in the near term.
1: Yeah, I love it. So so was was there along the way in your career, was there an actual catalyst that you can point to that said, Okay, enough is enough. I'm going to figure this out and augment my toolkit by getting my CMT charter?
2: Yes, there was, and it was this. I was covering Apple, Google, and Facebook, and they kept going up and up and up, and I could find no... Fundamentals kept telling you to downgrade them, and then you downgrade them and it would go up more. And so I think what the CMT helps me with is that that was the catalyst, is that just fundamental analysis did not work for these mass aggregators. And it was all, a lot of it was sentiment-driven at the beginning. A lot of the upside to aggregation and the internet economics that were going to turn out to be winner-take-all were sentiment-oriented. While those are the three names that worked, I was covering 10 names you've never heard of because it didn't work, right? <laughs> so you could see, you could track the sentiment and see how people were feeling. And then what happens is, as you guys know, once the sentiment disappeared, if there isn't fundamental strength and underlying it just there's no downside protection. Yeah. There is yeah. no worst case anymore. And that's right. what we're seeing in Netflix today. But in some of those ones that are like gone now, CMT totally helped me say, okay, guys, here's what the sentiment is telling us. This is what we think fundamental value is. So you could tell people both. Here's what the chart says. Here's what the fundamental research says. Take your pick. And mm-hmm. I think people who don't have both really are at a disadvantage over those of us who have yeah. both tools in our toolbox.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I should just let you keep on talking because you're saying everything perfectly. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, everything you're saying is you're making all the points we're trying to make with this podcast. And so very much appreciate having this conversation with you. You mentioned a, a, a rather advanced technical indicator, the Bollinger Band, which is something that's obviously John Bollinger was. We were fortunate to have him as one of our guests here on the podcast not too long ago with a a listen if you haven't heard it yet. What are some of the other tools that you rely on from a technical perspective?
2: So the three I like for I absolutely overlay my Bollinger Bands on everything I look at. I would say I use that. My top three are that one. My second one is price at volume. That's super helpful to me. Like where I'm looking at where stocks are gonna hit a ceiling or hit a floor, I'm using the price at volume coupled with the Bollinger Band for volatility. Mm -hmm. I Mm -hmm. absolutely look at the chalk and money flows. I think that's really helpful to see what's happening with sentiment flows in and out. Are they dissipated? And of course, I use the MACD if it's a momentum stock, right? You can't use it if it's yep. oscillating.
0: Exactly but right.
2: I, so I would say I put it forth. It's super important if you're dealing with a growth stock. It's less important if you're dealing with oscillating, you know, companies. So I'd use it fourth most often because I use Bollinger Bands and Price at Volume for everything.
1: Right. Um, but the MACD so, so- is the
2: most important if it's a growth stock.
1: I totally agree with that, and I'm I'm curious if you speak to your trading desk at all about what's happening from a from a flow standpoint because you know the the trading desk is right at the epicenter of supply and demand. I mean that's where it happens. So do you ever see something happen in the market and call your trading desk and say, hey, what was that like? What was the volume like? Who, who's the typical buyer? Who's the typical seller in this in these transactions? I do not. Mm-hmm. I used to do that when I was with uh, Wellington, when we were managing money, we would call the trading desk and just get a sense from them. And they're, they're just uh, fantastic, probably one of the best desks on the on the buy side, if not the best. They just always gave me some really interesting insights. You know, you talked about rounding out your toolkit, maybe give your trading desk a call and say, hey, what, what do you see there? There's probably a number of CNTs on your trading desk, I'd imagine, just to get some additional color that you can kind of triangulate with your technical observations and your fundamental observations and then what's happening real time on the trading. Yeah, Tyler.
0: I just wanted to stick on this Netflix call because there were a couple of comments you made over the last few months that that really caught my attention. First and f- foremost being that Netflix is no longer a growth stock. We should be treating this as a media company. And so I was wondering if you could expand a little bit on being a TMT analyst for all of these years. Do you see... Technical analysis having even more importance for folks who are focused on growth equities, who are focused in these sectors that are perhaps most susceptible to changes in interest rate environment and and maybe how you're dealing with that from a philosophical standpoint now that we've had such a regime shift here in 2022?
2: Well, I'll answer it this way. I do think that what technical, so what we've been talking about so far is let's call it microeconomic technical analysis, where I'm looking at Netflix, I'm telling you where it's gonna trade, and then that's an overlay of what the chart's telling me and what's the and what the fundamental value is. Okay, that's like micro. The other thing that CMT I use less often, but right now very importantly, is technical analysis also has you pay attention to things like currency swings, wars, mm-hmm. inflation, Yeah, that I think is a fundamental Alice. Sometimes you can lose sight of those macro things. And I think a CMT training makes you realize that these macro events and what's happening to the equity markets writ large, actually Mm -hmm. you have to pay attention to that compared to the bond markets or gold or oil, these other Mm -hmm. markets. Because I think that CMT training, those three exams are constantly making you trade off between equity markets and other And Mm. I think if you've been trained as a fundamental analyst just in the equity markets, it's really easy to forget all those other markets compete with you. And so then you get, like, blindsided by some of these macro trends. And right now, like, for 10 years, it didn't matter. Interest rates were coming down and there was zero inflation. But right now, it matters that you think it's important to pay attention to sort of these bigger issues about how do equity returns compare to bonds or gold or currencies, right? So I do think that's another maybe less frequent, but more important in certain times in the market that CMT training gives you.
0: For sure, that rotation away from growth into value, you know, out of the stay-at-home tech trade and into oil and transports, really easy to miss if you are just focused on the fundamentals of just your sector. How much work do you do with other colleagues throughout Needham? I mean, I would imagine that in the team of analysts there aren't that many other CMT charter holders. Do they lean on you for opinions in that macro sense?
2: No, I would say no. I would say that my business is one of experts. So mm-hmm. I don't really talk to the healthcare guy and I don't really talk to the chip guy. I mean, maybe sometimes you do, but I mean you're not right. they're going to figure out what makes sense for their business like My firm was super supportive of me getting a CMT because I told him I can't make these calls on Google and Facebook and Apple legitimately because they keep all the signals tell me to downgrade them. And I can tell you that just doesn't feel right. But I need a new set of belief systems. I need a new framework. And CMT gives me it's like having both Judaism and Catholicism all in the same. But like sometimes you need one, sometimes (laughs) you need the other to give you the right answer. (laughs) And so my firm was very supportive of that. But. If an analyst doesn't feel he needs both, you can't force him to get both.
1: Right. Can I bring right. in another religion also known as valuation? Yes. Uh, <laughs> as, a, as a growth investor, one of the biggest falls I've seen over the years by growth investors is that they adhere too much to a valuation framework because you know they overweighted, I should say, and, and stocks get expensive and they just keep going. As you indicate, the charts tell you to stay long. But oftentimes the thing that keeps people from engaging is valuation. So how how do you process valuation as you're looking at a coverage name, looking at the chart, things like that?
2: I mean, I think the to shorthand the answer to make it super clear, I think that if companies are trading on a PE, which is like a value idea, and half the time on an enterprise value to EBITDA, you can basically use fundamental analysis. It should abide by market averages and it has to be growing faster, like some of the really strong academic work that's been done on value stocks, I absolutely think applies and you can safely use that. Where that tool work doesn't work is where you have companies that are growing revenue at 30%, yes, 40%. Exactly. And they're positive profit margins, and there's no end in sight because they can expand globally, or they can add new products that increase their total revenue per subscriber. Or and then the fundamental work does not work anymore because there's like it, the growth trajectory could be ten years, and it could end up being a business that's you know a hundred billion dollars that we've just never seen because the internet didn't exist. So in that kind of case, you you really really need to turn to technical analysis, which shows you what the support resistance and what's happening with hitting new you know the lows are higher and the highs are higher you can tell it's going to keep going up so that's Mm -hmm. where you really need that because by the way the key point to be made here is fundamental analysis is inherently a reversion to the mean analysis Mm -hmm. but cmt is not it is a momentum analysis so it gives you the opposite framework so that in your mind you can come to an impartial conclusion about what's gonna happen for that equity. Is it gonna be a momentum idea where the, where the growth trajectory just keeps accelerating, which is what's happened at Facebook and Google and Apple for a long time? Or is it gonna be a reversion of the mean story, which is the only story that fundamental analysis gives you? Mm-hmm. Um, and if that transitions, by the way, today Netflix is transitioning from momentum to fundamental. And now we'll start having to abide by the rules of the Walt Disney Company and Paramount and Warner Brothers Discovery. It Mm -hmm. will change the rules against which we base it and its valuation now.
1: Do you use relative performance? Like you have a coverage list of probably uh, you probably cover what, 20 or 30 names?
2: 30. Mm -hmm.
1: Do you ever rank those from a relative performance perspective and say, okay, this is at the top. I need to make sure that my if I don't have a buy on it, I need to know for sure why I don't have a buy on it and these rank at the bottom. And if I have a buy on it, I need to like double down and make sure because the message of the market is contrary to what I'm saying in my fundamental work. Do you ever do something like that?
2: So it's tricky because really money, money is managed by market cap. So let's say Mm -hmm. you like Apple as a top pick. That's lovely, but there's half your clients can't talk to you because they can't buy Apple. It's too big right? So you can't, I would argue, you can't really do it that way. For more, I'm is. in a client service business. So you mm-hmm. have to have a ranking for, you know, less than $2 billion and then a $2 billion to like maybe $50 billion and then above $50 billion. That's yeah. fair because that's how money is managed. So within those, yes. The other thing I would say is as a long time equity analyst on both the buy and sell side, I would say another thing that early on in my career, I would make very narrow distinctions between this radio guy is going to go up more than that radio guy and in point of fact either radio works or it doesn't work so you know i find it harder to justify like i do 12 single line businesses called ad tech it is super hard to say as an analyst of course i do 12 i don't cover 200 stocks so Mm -hmm. i'm like you know i can say within these 12 but to call them buy, sell, hold, they all move together. They all get paid as a percent of advertising. So in point of fact, they all move together. So my advice to clients has to be, look, I think people should be in ad tech. And if you you know, manage small cap money, here's four choices. If you manage mid cap money, here's six choices. If, you, if you're large cap money, there's one choice, but I suggest you be in the one choice. So, okay. and they don't really move differently. Like either they're all yeah. gonna work or they're not gonna work because it's a percent of ad revenue. So you have to have ad revenue that's healthy.
0: Yep. right right and is that the point at which your fundamental understanding of the strategic side how their business model is working or maybe advancements that they have in the in the technology versus others is that where there's there's really a difference to be made on the fundamental side versus looking just at the charts of stocks in that group
2: I think so, because I I think you have to have a point of view about what's happening to earnings for the group. And is it being disintermediated by walled gardens like Facebook and Google or Mm -hmm. are right now Facebook is losing some of its advertising because thanks to the Apple changes in privacy regs. And Mm -hmm. so that Facebook revenue is coming into the open Internet, which benefits all nine or 12 of the guys in the open Internet. So that kind of fundamental might not be caught in the chart fast enough, like when you see you know, Facebook saying we're going to lose ten billion dollars this year because Apple's a bad guy. You're like, well, where is that going? It's going to get spent. Yeah. Guess what? It's going to be at Trade Desk and Magnite and buyant and so you know that right away before the charts start showing it.
0: Sure, fantastic. Yeah, Laura,
1: right, what, what what about a situation where you have a stock that you have a strong fundamental view on, but across every time frame of trend, it's in a downtrend? What do you do with that situation, and how do you counsel investors as to what to do with that buy rated stock? knowing what you know about trend and how until you start to see higher highs and higher lows, it's really, it's in a downtrend. So there's risk, et cetera. How do you counsel investors with that type of conflict between fundamentals and technicals?
2: You know, one of the things I would say is I think technical analysis continues to have brand issues. I have several very large institutions, We only handle institutional money at Needham. We don't do any retail money that will not talk technical. Will not talk it. I have zero clients that call me and say I won't discuss fundamentals.
1: <laughs>
2: so sometimes you you try to you, you figure out who care. You know. By the way, I have clients that won't use return on capital either, which I think right. is far more ridiculous than not using. Charting techniques.
1: So, like, you no, know, you're dealing
2: with 2,000 clients and there's a bell curve. Some don't yeah. believe in return on capital. You're like, okay, I'm lost on that conclusion, but okay, we won't talk about EVA or return on capital or asset Good. allocation or free cash flow yield. We just won't talk about any of that. So, you know, the <laughs> client's the boss. So, I would say that my job is, as a communicator or as an, a seller of ideas is to figure out a way to get The information that I think the CMT gives me and figure out a way to put it into words that a fundamental investor can digest (laughs) and leave the charting verbiage. So it's like we all in CMT land, we understand Greek. If the other guy only understands Latin, it's our job to translate from Greek to Latin in a way he can input the data so that he still has our best advice without using the language he doesn't respect, know, believe in,
1: whatever. Yeah. Interestingly enough, you know, Tyler and I talk about this all the time. We've mentioned it on past episodes, but I'm in a fairly good sized room right here. And you could fill this room with all of the documents and papers that have been written from the academic community, from empirical evidence of the the validation of technical analysis, trend following momentum. I mean, it works. It's undeniable. It's like to say that trend doesn't work is like as my old my old boss at Wellington, Frank Texar, used to say, if you don't believe in trend, that's like saying you don't believe in oxygen. You know, it, it's real. Right. But my question to you is, given that you're so well embedded on both sides, fundamental and technical, and you obviously speak to people on the fundamental side about technicals, what do you think is the prevailing reason for why fundamentally
0: minded investors struggle to embrace oxygen?
2: Honest opinion,
0: please. <laughs> the customer is always right, except when they're wrong. Is that what we're about to hear? <laughs> no,
2: it's not what you're about to hear. Look, well, here's what I would say. There is a lot. Here's one of the things I learned in studying for the CMT. Third party academic literature, especially if it's won a Nobel or it's a referee journal or it's won something internationally prestigious, even if it's 50 years old, really does carry weight. I'm going to call it forever. But what I really mean by that is the guys who are the best money managers are the ones that didn't get fired in year 10, didn't get fired in year 20, and they're all trained in fundamental analysis because CMT is a little more new. So what, ha- what has to happen here is I think the CMT needs a lot more money put to academic resources to get third parties to vet our stuff, find mm-hmm. examples where it did a better job than fundamental analysis standalone. You know it works because traders use it and I use it to make better calls. So you know it works or people would stop using it. But in terms of its brand and getting it adopted quicker, I think you really, really need to have third-party, impartial, academic, and and decades of this, not like four years, like Mm -hmm. decades of this, without the noise where it's really clear and preferably where it wins some very prestigious global award, which takes decades.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think one of maybe Tyler, one of the things we can do is perhaps on our website do a better job of aggregating that academic research because the, the, that research is out there and it is, goes all the way back to 1990, I think may, maybe 1989 on the momentum factor, so it's out there. It's just all over the place. And maybe we just need to do a better job of aggregating it on behalf of the investment community so they can see the value of it. But that's perhaps for another another discussion.
2: I would can aggregate you? it and then I would hire yeah. a summer intern at twenty five dollars an hour and I would have them do one page summaries of everyone. So here's the one page executive uh, summary. Guess, this is why you yeah. should read this. Click here and that Great would get video. people to like it would soften their entry path to get CMT. It would make them more interested, I mm-hmm. think. More credible. Yeah. When I first started the CMT, one of my best friends said, are you gonna do tarot cards next? And I mm. said, if there's an external credential and it's a hard exam, yes.
0: And it <laughs> helps me <them> make money.
2: <laughs> I didn't say that to him, but yes, of course.
0: I think we've had a brand issue for a very long time. We've talked to several guests on this show. Their original thesis was uh, had something to do with market timing and then they learned that, you know, quantitative methodology was, was really the key word that needed to be on there. And I think if you told people you were serving them snails for dinner, they would, you know, turn their nose up. But if you delivered- Yummy,
2: yummy, not me. I love-
0: As go <laughs> to the table, right? Like the, there's there's just some nomenclature that I think technical analysis has been associated with pieces that are perhaps less objectifiable. There's, there's more subjective noise. But to your point, I see all of the Nobel literature and behavioral finances basically taking the concepts that have been- well vetted by charles dow and mona Hisahoma and you know investor behavior has been observed in the technical community for hundreds of years even though in the psychological community it's been you know the last 50
2: i would make one other point yeah and this is something this is something i think we could fix like you want to say this is why we're going to add skills for you and make you better at what you already think you're good at
0: I think that's been a big shift in the last 10 years. And it's been folks like Dave Lundgren and Frank Teixeira who start almost every presentation with, you know, trends only exist because there are strong fundamental reasons for them to persist, right? Mm-hmm. And bringing in that sentiment component is very complimentary. So Laura, let's shift gears a little bit because we are sort of at an inflection point, And you touched on this in another interview, just about not losing sight of the forest for the trees and specifically in the TMT sector. What do you see playing out for Web 3.0 and and how the business models are going to change drastically in content production and ownership, in communications and and generally for technology related stocks?
2: Okay, so I love this topic. Oh, my God. It is the most interesting (laughs) thinking we are doing, having nothing to do with either fundamentals or technicals because we have a track record for neither. So right. what I like the most <laughs> is that everybody, let's, talk to, let's break out the metaverse versus Web3 and define them differently. Yep. Web3 is harder. It comes after the metaverse idea. So the metaverse idea is where we're spending time. And I would say, look, I can definitely see both sides. The metaverse as I define it is basically this integration of the digital world and the physical world. And I think it is, is adopted fastest by the 15-year-old Boy, that got stuck locked at home, and he brought all of his socializing to Fortnite and to his gaming hours. And now he's back at school, but his relationships actually online that he's developed globally are actually stronger relationships for that kid after two years of COVID than they are in the real world. So to him, his world is, you know, 10 hours in the real physical world plus five hours of screen time. To him, it's just his world. So the metaverse is bringing the same kinds of use cases that we have in the physical world, like Nike shoes, into the digital world. I want to have my Nike shoes. I want to wear my WWE t-shirt. Well, people are license holders and they want to make money from that. Of course, WWE is happy to sell you its gear, but you don't get it for free. You have to buy it. What do you buy it with? Well, you can buy it with real currency, but the go-to backbone of funding, the metaverse, let's call this the metaverse, is crypto. That's interesting too. So they put the funding layer in first. Now you've got this use case where a lot of these young men are really, they really want to create their own avatars, their own personalities, and they want to be able to carry a Gucci purse. Okay. That might be women and have Nike shoes and have their W, you know, their wrestling t-shirt on as they run around their digital world. But that world is as real to them as the physical world because they're 15. And for two of the years, like a third of their life, they've been locked at home on a screen okay that's the metaverse that is super interesting i think it's incremental and i think at the margin it helps the biggest brands that are already the biggest brands right so nike makes money because there's early adopters they're very cutting edge very clever they will prove this out and then there'll be late followers like pepsi will sell you a pepsi you can walk around with and coke and so all of these like this first step of metaverse i think is about existing brands that you wanna bring into the metaverse. And then of course, some cool influencer, and we've seen it in NFTs for artists, where people pay a lot of money for a really clever digital-only artist. They don't exist in the physical world, some of these people. But you'll get new brands like, Tyler, you can create a new drum set for the phys- for the the like you don't make drugs in the physical world, but you can make drums in the mm-hmm. digital world and sell those because your picture is cooler. So oh, right. they'll be like, let me call it digital only or metaverse only participants, but it will come later. The, the the ones who will break originally are like the existing brands, I think. Web three Web three is way more radical because what it does then is th- threatens everything. That is centralized today because it's distributed, right? Hmm. So the people that have the most to lose are Apple, Google, Facebook, anyone who has centralization is there
1: Did you say Netflix? There, <laughs> just how saying, much maybe, more can you have an opportunity?
2: Yeah, maybe. I was thinking anybody who benefits from aggregation, but the biggest beneficiaries yeah, yeah. are the trillion dollar market caps, not the hundred billion dollar market caps. So it's the big four: Amazon, Apple, Google, Facebook. They're all over a trillion dollars. Owing to their centralization, web three decentralizes everything. So the guys Mm -hmm. with the most to lose are the guys that benefited the most from re-aggregating the internet in Web Mm 2. So, But I got it, you know, A, companies just don't let you take their business away. Those companies in Web 2 are going to fight like hell not to lose their $3 trillion of market cap in Web 3. So they won't stand still. They will try to find a way to not, you know, to defend their value. And then web three also is gonna have regulatory issues. You know that's coming. Crypto's gotta be regulated because right now there's a lot of dark money going there and governments don't like that. So there's gotta be a lot of regulatory stuff that happens that I think create friction in the adoption of web three, even though I do not see friction in adoption of the metaverse because I think it's additive to the biggest players.
1: Interesting. So on the the metaverse, you know, I'm just thinking about a similar analogy you know back 100 plus years ago when we when we went from horse and buggy to automobile and and now today we have you know physical life to digital life in the metaverse what i see today where, where we just have basically nike trying to sell shoes in the metaverse is comparable yeah. to the the buggy whip manufacturer when it knows it's being completely disrupted trying to figure out you know trying to tell the the new auto uh, owner where to store the buggy whip in the auto and completely missing the point like the automobile is way bigger than where to put your buggy buggy whip. Because the buggy whip the horse and buggy's over, right? So is it is there not something that's bigger than like selling Nike and Pepsi on the metaverse? Is the metaverse not something bigger than that? Isn't it more no. meaningful than it's not?
2: Well, sorry. I would say the look, I think the metaverse is emergent and it will be determined by eighteen year old men. I do not think that this is gonna be our generation. We don't know what the metaverse has for value. It will be the 18 year old men who spend five hours a day on screen time. I believe they think their reality is 10 hours of physical, seven hours of screen time or some, and then sleep, like that's it. So whatever they think is the valid use case, that's who's gonna determine what the metaverse means, not us and in the near term, what I think that means is if the kid in the real world is wearing Nike Air Jordans, I believe that when he gets to the digital world, in the beginning, he's going to be able to wear, he's going to want to wear Nike Air Jordans unless he wants to spend two bucks to buy your new shoe that's even cooler. But he's not going to buy something less cool in the he's not going to want something less cool in the digital world than in the physical world because to him, it's just his world we're Mm. making these arbitrary distinctions about whether it's on a screen or in real life because most of our time because we're old has been spent in real life i do not think the 18 year old does that i think to him it is his reality my opinion is if he's paying up a premium for brands in the physical world he will also pay for that brand or better in the digital world
0: you said specifically young men and (laughs) that web 3 is going to be more of a male dominated space than than female. Is there any metaverse. evidence
2: metaverse, oh, not web three? Web three is the distributed the destruction right. of everything that came before. But yeah. let's talk metaverse, I agree with what you just said.
0: So so what is it that you feel is driving more male participation than female participation in the metaverse?
2: because I think what happened in, you know, this is my conjecture, just my opinion. So could, I mean, this stuff is so emergent, it's so much fun to think about. No answers, just all Mm -hmm. questions. Mm -hmm. But what I think happened in COVID that was different by gender is that the 18 year old boy went to the screen and started making friends in Fortnite and he moved his whole social life into Minecraft, Minecraft and into social venues globally, like he has global friends now in these gaming interactive environments i think girls did that less they played scrabble and they played tetris but they kept their physical location or they kept themselves on snap and facebook and they kept the social groups that they had before because they don't Mm. game as much they don't do interactive gaming as much and it's not substitutable you know i think anyway i'll leave it there i do think that men and as you know men make more money than women so the money is where the men that are 18 year old that are gonna make more money every year until they her- turn 29. Where mm-hmm. they want the use cases to go is where the money will be spent. And by the way, women will come along, but they'll come along at the 30% level of total and men will be 70% of total.
1: Gotcha. To bring this back to stocks, because this is definitely a conversation we could run down the rabbit hole on. And I know you only have an hour with us today, so let's let maybe bring it back to stocks a little bit. And just curious within your ratings today, mm-hmm. can you identify a couple names that maybe you see down the road, are in the crosshairs of Web 3.0, but that's far enough out that you are still uh, willing to keep a buy rating on it, the chart still looks fine. Are there any stocks like that in your coverage today?
2: So Web 3.0, which I think is, if it happens at all, which is the decentralized area, I would be short. If Web 3.0 happened, even five years out, and I believed that to be true, I would go short Facebook and Google immediately apple has hardware so i might go to a hold on them and amazon i'm not sure i would have to think about that we cover all four of those stocks but the biggest losers immediately would be facebook and google if web 3.0 yeah. is really going to decentralize everything
1: right and you're not really pressing that bet yet because it's too far out in the future and you don't even have concrete evidence that it's going to really happen i mean there's so many moving parts on that like to, you don't even know what the, the regulation looks like yet so it's hard to really yeah interesting how about on the other side where you see names within your coverage that are probably smaller cap names that stand to benefit from at least the digitization trends that are taking place, whether it's Web 3, 3.0 or not, that you have rated by, that you're, you're particularly excited about today?
2: I think companies that have the ability, so all the streaming companies are already, I'm going to call it metaverse, but they're they're digital, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know if they're metaverse, but to but the, the, but the point, if you have a, a streaming company that's already, Baby Yoda, let's just use that, right? That's a Mandalorian, it's Disney Plus. Mm-hmm streaming company only. There's nothing in the, like on the linear TV or in the movies or in the theme parks, that's Baby Yoda, except they do make merchandise, of course. But if you had Baby Yoda that you could buy in the metaverse that ran around on your shoulder, people, that's a metaverse idea, right? It would be something that sat around on your avatar. You could have Baby Yoda on your t-shirt or on your shoulder or following you around like he does the Mandalorian and that little egg. Like people would pay for that. Yep. And that is a digital asset, you know, and you can make them non-transferable like they can make them NFTs, so that the, you have the authentic and other people have the copy like Picasso. Mm-hmm. But somebody can own the original and have paid a lot of money for the original. I see those as beneficial to the original IP owner in an incremental way. If the metaverse evolves the way it looks right now, which is a very incremental idea. So I feel it's going to be more radical because, again, it's being emergent by 18 year old boys that don't have any of the biases that we do in terms of how things start. You know, they don't have the anchors that we do to the physical world.
1: Yeah, they're way smarter than us because they don't know as much as we do.
2: Well, they don't have habits that we all made for 30 years that just got disrupted for two years. They didn't have any of those (laughs) habits and then they got disrupted for two years.
0: Just to conclude the earlier point, uh, I don't know if gender is going to exist in the same way in the metaverse in the sense that we don't have the same social norms in a digital avatar that we would have at, say, the hallways of a middle school, right?
2: Hopefully. I don't know. Let's see. It's a lot of bullying. <laughs> goes on in both worlds, seems to me. Uh,
0: yes. Equal opportunity bullying now, right? <laughs>
1: yeah. Ah. I'm going to paraphrase something that Ian McMillan said, and I think it was episode 15, Tyler. He basically said this, like, one such a simple statement, but it's undeniably true. He said. And again, I'm paraphrasing it, so it's going to be approximately right. But he said, it's very, very, very difficult to beat a benchmark if you don't own things that are beating the benchmark. And so that was a topic in a a, a, uh, concept that I used to talk to when I was at Wellington in, in Fidelity, dealing with fundamentally minded investors. That's a concept that I would bring to them constantly because it's just a hard, hard fact truth. So one of the ways that I would get to that is I would go through our internal analyst coverage and I'd say, this analyst has a buy rating on the stock and it's, Got a great-looking trend, and so that's how I would source ideas for portfolio managers, both at Wellington and and Fidelity. And so I kind of went through your coverage, and I I went through and I said, well, let's let's see if we can find some you know already well-established trends that Laura has ready to buy, or maybe even something better that's just starting, possibly starting to get going technically that Laura has ready to buy. So do you mind if we just—it's almost like a what comes to mind when I say this word type of exercise, but it's actually not—it's your coverage, so you should be shouldn't be taking too uh, by too much of a surprise, but okay to do that? Trials. So, Trials. so so, let's say Paramount, you have okay. a buy rating on it. Chart I looks do. like it's just getting started to get going. What's the fundamental catalyst here to own that stock?
2: The fundamental catalyst is that they have more value. Their fundamental value has more value in streaming than the entire market cap. So you're getting the, set, the $4 billion of EBITDA that comes from there. Core linear TV business for free.
1: Love it. Okay. How about Perion Networks? I haven't even heard of this one. Chart looks fantastic though. P E R I is a symbol.
2: Yep. So, Israeli based ad tech company. They are doing really innovative things with interactive advertising. Do you remember that Super Bowl commercial where there was just like a U, you, you know, those, the, what is it, UGC code? Q, what
0: are those? UR code. QR yeah. yeah.
2: Yep. So, they're putting those into TV, because everybody is, always has their phone or their tablet on yeah. when they're watching TV now. Yeah. So you have a commercial, there's a QR code. If you hold it up, it gives you like a $10 discount, buy now, they go straight to buy now. So it makes wow. it really easy, this notion of interactive shopping, which we've been hearing about for 20 years, makes it really easy to do that. And they're getting $100 CPMs cost per thousand. They're an ad agency-ish, yeah. $100 cost per thousand for these interactive ads, very innovative Israeli company.
1: You know that, that sounds a lot like Steve Forbes, Forbes magazine, uh, years ago. This is, gosh, might have been 20 years ago, maybe 15 years ago, prior to us having a, our smartphone, where we could clip. What's it called again? That code? QR code. A QR, QR code. code. Before we could do that, he would he would put similar codes in a magazine, but you had to have the Forbes magazine provide a device to do it. And what if you did that, it would take you right to the web. It was, you know, way ahead of his time. And so this is basically doing what Steve Forbes was thinking of some 15 odd years ago. OK, how about how about names where the, the chart is a table pounding hold and you have a hold on it and you come across a PM who owns it and loves it? What would you tell somebody like Disney? Disney is a big kind of range bound mess. Totally agree with the hold rating. What's your thoughts there?
2: So Disney, Disney is a tough one because it's a tough look, it's a tough one because it's a conglomerate and theme mm-hmm. parks are on a tear. Like I've never seen margins this high in theme parks and they're only at 80% capacity because they still have COVID restrictions. So it's like crazy to think that they could get another 30% of revenue on top of these massive margins. So that's sort of interesting, but on the other side, we still have cruise ships that keep getting canceled and they still have a lot of physical assets. And so of course returns on capital are way better if you have more digital assets. If you don't have the physical world assets, it can be shut down by COVID, or somebody can shoot somebody, or suddenly you have mosquitoes where you have to shut down. Or China can shut down your park against your will when they shut down Shanghai. So physical assets have higher risks as proven by the pandemic. And Disney has really good upside momentum in terms of its streaming and because of its theme parks. But then it has downside because it also has ESPN and the linear TV ecosystem is under siege. So as always with Disney, it's a conglomerate. So you're trying to prioritize what's going to affect earnings in the near term.
1: Like a a sum of the parts type of analysis.
2: Sort of. Like, yeah, what's going to, you know, how bad are streaming losses and the downdraft in linear TV versus how fast is theme parks trajectory going up? And what is that doing to the net earnings per share and therefore the PE?
0: Yeah. Laura, I wanted to ask you just to stick on Disney for a second. The time frame that you're working with in client services, right? You're talking to other PMs on a monthly chart. Disney looks like it's, you know, right back at support. Potentially an awesome buying opportunity. Uh, on the daily and the weekly, it, it kind of looks destroyed, right? Right, Ra- as Dave said, range-bound mess. But we've been we've been drifting lower for a while. So for your clients, uh, do you have to adjust your time horizon based on, on their parameters? Do you, do you qualify a lot of these things based on the time horizon that you're looking at? And if so, what's that?
2: So I would say that for safety, you sort of stick to fundamentals. And then if somebody brings up the chart and says, well, this looks like a really good buying opportunity, that sort of gives you a fast pass into talking about the chart. But I would um, say it still remains dangerous to start with chart. So, for example, if somebody says, Laura, I'm thinking of buying Disney, what do you think? And therefore, I want to support that. I'd say, well, here's the great things about Disney. And I might put the chart forth. I'd have Mm -hmm. three key takeaways on the fundamental side, and I might put the chart forth. But it's Mm -hmm. dangerous. You know, the guy might either, you know, say, don't talk to me about the chart. Or he might say, oh, the chart's interesting. But it would not be one, two, or three. I would do fundamentals for safety. So if he's going to throw away one, maybe he keeps the chart point, but he throws away point number two. Because he thinks he disagrees or he doesn't think it's important.
0: Mm-hmm. As it relates to time horizon, would you be talking to them about it's a buy eventually? We, we need to see momentum pick up in this direction. You know, would you hold waiting for momentum to confirm that, that trend move? Do you lean on your charts in that way to help make your calls more timely?
2: So I would say that differently. I would say generally we change ratings once a year, once every two years. So my hold on Disney, so the way a guy will frame it is I'm thinking of going into Disney and I could say, well, today it's at support. So if you're thinking of going in, great. Or it's up against the top of its Bollinger Band. I would wait till it hits this price, which is the bottom, and I would enter there. So I yep. can use it that way. Say, here's the fundamental reasons I support your point of view, even though we have a one-year hold, right? Because it's, we're right. doing a hold. But here's what the Bollinger Band tell is telling me, or price at volume is telling me, is a better entry point.
0: Perfect.
1: Tyler, kudos to you for stepping out to that monthly chart. That's a conversation we had with uh, JC last time. Of course, we've talked about it a lot as well. And and I think you're correct to say that it looks like it could be at long-term support. You know, to Laura's credit, I mean, from a relative performance perspective, this stock, Disney, peaked relative to the market back in 2016. And it's recently hitting the lowest relative performance. So that that monthly trend on the relative performance chart is completely shattered. So monthly trends are driven by fundamentals. At least from a relative perspective, this trend is in a clear fundamental downtrend from a relative perspective. So that was kind of what got me to highlight this one, actually. How about sell rating? So it's too bad that you didn't have a, a sell rating on Netflix and Facebook. But is that, as far as the buy side is concerned, having been there myself, whenever I saw a hold, I, I think that was the analyst's way of just really, truly saying sell. You had a great call on Netflix as a hold. Facebook is is a hold as well. The charts were terrible already to begin with. So you had that kind of going together where you had the fundamental and the chart looked looking terrible. Is there some combination of bad fundamentals and bad chart that would get you to just say sell as opposed to just hold?
2: To clarify, we did have a sell on Netflix till this morning for the last two years. so we sell or hold? Sell.
1: Oh, fantastic. We Even got a better. sell
2: on Netflix for a hold. 100% fundamentals, nothing having to, the chart didn't support a sell.
1: Yeah, yeah. It
2: just kept going up, right? And then yeah. we got COVID, and then that was bad for our call. But no, we, I was, you know... When it comes to conviction, charts are fickle. Charts are sentiment. They're fickle. So really to put a sell on something and then sit there during COVID while the stock moves up against you for six months and still sit there, I have to have really strong fundamental reasons about why I am not moving. And I don't think charting allows you to do that. Charting is sentiment-based. So if the sentiment shifts on you, you have to cave. You're like, okay, didn't see this coming, but sentiment has shifted. Today, sentiment shifted. Whatever I thought yesterday based on the chart is today wrong because it's down 37%. So it might get oversold. That's possible. But again, that goes back to fundamentals. So no, to have a controversial call where we have 40 analysts, it's strong by and by, and I am the sell, you have to have real conviction in the fundamentals playing out your way. Because mm-hmm. charts are sentiment-based and sentiments can change on you in a heartbeat for interest rates or macro or oil prices or something that has nothing to do with the fundamentals of your particular stock.
1: Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, the micro fundamentals, yeah. In respect for your time, Laura, I know you said you have an hour. This has been a great deep dive on your process, your understanding of the value of technicals. I think our community could not have Heard a better message and could not have heard it from a better user of technical analysis and fundamentals than yourself, Laura. So really truly appreciate you taking the time to meet with me and Tyler today. Very thankful for your time and, and your your input in the conversation. Thank
2: you very much. I really enjoyed being with you guys and have a wonderful day. Thank you.
0: Thanks so Thank you. much, Laura. We'll Bye. see you soon. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye. Fill the gap is brought to you with support from Optima. In addition to candidate study of the official CMT curriculum, Optima provides a full video course on all of the material that candidates need to know for each level of the CMT exams. Each course is broken up into modules ranging from 15 to 45 minutes, depending on the complexity and length of the topics being covered. Learn more at (laughs) Optima.com.